What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated, who was in the magazine NBA preview issue this week with not one but two feature stories. You don't see that every year. Absolutely love to see that from you, Rob. Congratulations. Hopefully, you will bear with me here for a second because I have an extended boxing metaphor that I've just got to get through. I oh, feel like our our spirit has been pummeled by this China story for two straight weeks. Don't worry. We're not going to dig back into that again, guys. Um, you know, we heard you loud and clear enough China talk. But as I was just being pummeled to the body, just, you know, punch after punch after punch by this China story, all of a sudden my hands dropped, my face was wide open, and I got jabbed straight in the mouth by the Zion Williamson injury news. And I think by now the open floor globe knows that I basically treat Zion like my very large adult son. Um, It's a little bit of an unusual relationship between us, but I have so much emotion personally invested in this guy, and I continually uh, accidentally injure him by being in his presence, whether it was at the North Carolina game or Summer League, that it just draws me closer. He is now going to be out uh, for the first six weeks uh, at least of the NBA season. I'm pretty distraught by that news. On top of all of that, LA, LA right now is going through a heat wave and I don't have air conditioning during these podcasts. So I'm about to overheat. I've got a cold towel around my shoulders, much like a boxer would. Uh, I don't have a cut man to like, you know, give me a shoulder massage or anything like that, Rob. But I'm telling you, this is how I know we love basketball. We're fighting through all of this adversity to talk hoops for the next hour. What do you think? It's true. And, you know, my thoughts and prayers to you, Ben, during this difficult time. I know I always I thought it was a little strange when I went over to your place and you had framed pictures of Zion on the wall. But that's just the level of commitment you're bringing to your job these days. You don't have your family members up on your wall, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Maybe I'm just a bad family I, member. I don't think it's that strange. But uh, here's the plan for today's show. OK, Rob, we're going to dive into the Zion thing uh, in a little bit, but we're not going to lead with it. What we're going to lead with is some predictions, uh, some superlatives around the league. And so, you know, some of these are going to be a little bit more lighthearted than others. We're going to obviously make our finals picks, but we're also going to dig in, you know, who are going to be the most disappointing teams, who are just going to be the flat out worst teams. We're going to try to get some team specific takes off here to open up. And then at the end, I wanted to discuss your profile of Jamal Murray, Denver Nuggets guard, Really interesting deep dive look in the magazine and uh, his own thoughts about his growth as a player and then some other players maybe who are being set up for uh, some breakout type seasons this year. So that's the game plan. Let's start uh, with the biggest picture, most important question, which of course has to come at the Eastern Conference's expense. Rob, who is your prediction to make the Western Conference finals this year? I like the Clippers and the Rockets there. And it's tough because so much of it's going to come down to how the seeding shakes out, whether you like the Lakers versus the Nuggets or the Jazz versus the Rockets or however it breaks down. But I think the Clippers are kind of the de facto favorite in terms of the talent level, having the elite wing play. And then the other spot's kind of a wild card. I like the Rockets just from like a James Harden championship contending foundation standpoint. Like this really isn't that different from the Rockets teams we've seen. And if that team was a contender, I kind of think this one will be too. Yeah, when you look back at these last couple of years, uh, obviously Warriors dominance in the Western Conference, was there another team that you thought could knock out James Harden? 
Um, obviously, they lost to the Spurs that one year when he had the you know the, the very strange meltdown. But like these last couple of years where he was really hitting on all cylinders, Chris was there. It was sort of like the best version of the Rockets that we'd seen. It was pretty much just Golden State who could take them down in the West, right? Yeah, I mean, these last two years, I think that's exactly the way to look at it. And it's certainly the way they look at it internally. When I was down there reporting that story and asking them about you know, how they're approaching, you know, transitioning off of these tough losses, whether there was any doubt in their minds as to whether kind of their plans and their formulas and their strategies work or whether they needed to revisit them at all. There was a lot of, well, we only lost to one team. And it was the one team who, you know, the Rockets gave them a pretty good run two years ago in the Western Conference Finals. Maybe they would have given them a good run again last year if, you know, Kevin Durant's injury kind of swung the series in a weird way that I think maybe the Rockets weren't ready for or anticipating and they lost a little bit of steam. But, I think they're really tough for a lot of these teams to beat. And we've seen, you know, take the Jazz, for example, and, you know, it's a different ball game with Mike Conley and Boyan Bogdanovich there. But when they ran into the Rockets, they just got picked apart. And I think some of these other teams are kind of in a similar position where they're just going to pick and roll you to death. And if you're not airtight on your defense there, and if you can't cover shooters well, you're going to have a really tough time playing that team. Yeah, I got bad news for the Rockets. If you're relying on, uh, you know, formulas from last year's, you're not taking into account, you know, the graphing calculator virus that is Russell Westbrook. I think he throws <laughs> a lot of that stuff just out the window. I'm not trying to just harp on him episode after episode, but I do think uh, we can get caught up in this idea of looking a little bit backwards too much of saying, okay, well, James is so good. He's so steady. He's so productive. Uh, he's such a difficult matchup cover for a bunch of the other teams in the Western Conference that we should just necessarily pencil them in. I'm not hating on your pick here, Rob. I'm just setting it up. It sounds like you're hating on my pick, Ben. I don't. I don't feel the same way. Okay, I've got the LA Clippers in the Western Conference Finals, but in place of the Houston Rockets, I've got the Utah Jazz. And it was a tricky call, like you're saying, the second open spot. You know, some of it I was trying to prognosticate, okay, who's going to have the better seedings, you know, based on a steadier regular season, because I think that could really help in some of these second round matchups. Um, But ultimately, I just think that Houston is easier to guard um, than they were in previous years. And I definitely think Utah... Uh, got better significantly in multiple offensive positions to the point where if we had replayed maybe some of those, uh, you know, Utah versus Houston series from the past with these current rosters, uh, I would, you know, be more inclined to take Utah uh, rather than Houston, even though Houston won those series, you know, relatively handily. So um, I'm going with the Jazz. I realize that we both snubbed the Nuggets. I don't feel great about that. We both snubbed the Lakers. I don't feel great about that, but that's why they pay us the big bucks, Rob, right? To make these tough calls. It's true. And I mean, the Nuggets in particular, because you could really imagine them having just an amazing regular season, being the number one team in the West, having home court advantage the whole way. But then you think about... I mean, if they have any vulnerabilities, it's there's some matchup-specific defensive stuff that I think could be an issue, and it comes out when you're asking, you know, Nikola Jokic, I think, acclimated himself really well in the playoffs, about as well as you could expect, and yet still in that series against the Blazers, there were some pick-and-roll issues defensively, and so if you're asking him to then guard, you know, LeBron and Anthony Davis, or James Harden and Clint Capella, or Russell Westbrook and Clint Capella, I mean, that's where those problems kind of start to pop up, and I think... This year, even more so than previous years, the Nuggets are going to be very matchup dependent in terms of how far they go in the playoffs. You know, another big weakness, I think, for the Nuggets potentially is Instagram love triangles. I don't know if you saw the Malik Beasley fight video on TMZ Sports this week. Oh, no. But, uh, you know, yeah, not great. Maybe we just leave that one there. But uh, in all seriousness, uh, 
the Western Conference Finals is very difficult to predict, and I want to twist this question a little bit. Um, let's let's take a for the good of the game approach. If you could have your ideal matchup, any two teams in that Western Conference Finals, you know, where you're basically saying like, all right, it's not, I'm not trying to, you know, be smart here and, and make the most logical pick, just the two teams that you'd want to see on that kind of a stage. Because as we know, I mean, there's really no comparison between the Western Conference and the Eastern Conference Finals, just in terms of historically how great the teams are there. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the SEC title game, uh, you know, versus some of these other conferences out there. So if you could pick any two teams, your dream matchup, what would it be? I think the Jazz would be in there because I'm I'm very curious to see how they match up with some of these teams that have a little bit more, you know, superstar power at least, you know, those kind of go-to creators in ways that, you know, even Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell who are are fairly good in that capacity don't quite measure up to a LeBron or a Kawhi. And so I like them as kind of a counterpoint in that. And so then the question is who do you want to pair them with to get that real, you know, if if styles make fights, who do you want to be the kind of stylistic counterpoint? And the Lakers may be the best example of that. I mean, LeBron in a high stakes series, there's really nothing like it in terms of, you know, watching him toy with when he needs to take over, when he can kind of play back you know, facilitating for Anthony Davis, making sure he can get set up. And then all of the kind of weirdness of that Lakers roster. I like the Jazz as this like complete team that has a lot of stuff figured out in terms of how to maximize its pieces. And then the Lakers as, you know, a very different proposition, this very top heavy team that has so much to figure out in, over the course of a series to just get like usable lineups on the floor. I love how dorky your dream was. You went straight <laughs> to the Jazz and then spent like 30 seconds talking yourself into the Lakers. I think the answer I was expecting from a lot of people, maybe it's a casual fan thing, maybe it's a SoCal bias thing, would be Clippers-Lakers, right? I mean, just the clash of philosophies. They're fighting for the deed to the Staples Center and the hearts and minds of B-list celebrities across the city. I mean, I think uh, you know that one is fairly juicy, uh, but I totally hear what you're saying. Uh, the Jazz are a team that we're probably not going to be spending – all that much airtime on this year, but uh, I think that they're an example of a front office that sort of has a clear vision, knows exactly who their best player is, how to build around him. It's been a very methodical growth process. They threw some money out this summer in ways maybe they hadn't previously. Uh, This is their time, right? And I would imagine, even though a guy like Donovan Mitchell is very young, I would imagine that the, the... sentiment in that locker room is like not now or never but you know now this is it let's do it and I think this could be a team that runs off a great regular season and I do think that sometimes you know but maybe I'm thinking of this because of Mike Conley but when you get to the playoffs year after year you have some level of success but you start to hit walls um, you know you're more prepared than others to take advantage when there's an opening uh, and to me, I think that's why I picked, uh, you know, Utah to make the conference finals. And I think they're going to be uh, more fun than they've been in recent years to watch play, too. All right, let's uh, shift gears here quickly to the Eastern Conference. I'm pretty sure I can guess which two teams you've got in there, but hit me. I mean, it's, I think it's Bucks and Sixers, obviously, in terms of who's going to be there. I kind of like the Bucks in that matchup. I think it's going to be it's going to be really tough. I mean, if anyone can guard Giannis, it's now the team that has you know a big guard in, in Ben Simmons who could try his hand. You've got Al Horford there. You've, you can even throw Tobias Harris into that mix. Like, there's so much length, and then with Embiid, you know, laying in wait to kind of meet him at the rim. I think it's going to be really hard for the Bucks, but I think they have a little bit in terms of 
know, there's a little bit more certainty in terms of what they're bringing to the table offensively, where the Sixers, there are a lot of questions. There's a lot they need to figure out, starting with like who's handling the ball in crunch time, how their offense is going to function, that I think we need to see first. And there's enough talent to think that, okay, this team is clearly going to get to the conference finals, but how do they measure up against you know, what was a 60-win team with maybe the best player in the league and a really nice surrounding cast to space the floor for him. I kind of like the Bucks in that matchup, but those are obviously the two teams who are going to be there, I think, projecting from this point. Yeah. For sure. Those are my two teams, too. And look, I'm, gonna t- I'm just going to be upfront and honest right now. I am guilty of a uh, unintentional tribute to Andrew Sharp here with this pick because I went on a podcast on Friday and I picked the Sixers to beat the Bucks. Uh, to make the finals. And I spent all weekend just feeling horrible about myself because, <laughs> I mean, obviously the Giannis Inc. ties run deep and the idea that, yes, I'm very scared by Philly's front line and what they're going to potentially be able to do to Giannis. But at the same time, like, I don't want to feel right if they beat him, you know? I kind of want to feel devastated. So I'm going to grease pig this thing up. I'm going to do a 180. I'm back on picking the Bucks to beat the Sixers. You mentioned stylistic clashes, uh, you know, in your Western Conference answer. Kind of the same deal here too, right? I mean, I think uh, Milwaukee can hope to shoot the ball better in this year's playoffs than they did last year. They're going to keep going to that well over and over again. For Philly, that's the big question. Is the is the core going to get crunched? Are they going to be able to execute enough offensively? What happens with Simmons in crunch time? And then what happens when Simmons has to face, you know, his, his older brother Giannis uh, in the playoffs? I mean, those are questions that no one can know the answer to. And, uh, you know, I think he's probably going to be entering that series, you know, that showdown with some mental baggage. You know, I don't really see any way around it based on sort of some of their past meetings. So I'm picking Bucks over Sixers uh, in that matchup. I apologize for changing my mind. I hate doing that, uh, but I just, it didn't sit right, Rob. You know, it was just like, I was queasy. You know, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. <laughs> I felt I felt ashamed. And so I, I had to do it. I appreciate you greasing up the pig one more time for old time's sake. <laughs> All right, NBA Finals. Uh, what do you got? So, I mean, I think it's the Clippers and the Bucks there. And, you know, there's there's obviously a strong argument that the Sixers could get into that mix. But I think the Clippers seem like the safest bet out West, which is a weird thing to say about a team that, you know, their two-star players have some pretty serious injury concerns. But between, you know, Kawhi and Paul George, what they can do when they're healthy, the value of elite wing play in the modern NBA, and then just kind of the supporting cast there, which, as we saw last year in the playoffs, can give even a team like the Warriors a run for their money, can kind of press them in spots. I just like the balance there. And I think they will ultimately be the champions. Of course, you know, you're you're kind of hoping that a major injury doesn't shake things up, but if all goes kind of relatively according to plan, I think the Clippers have the most figured out of any team right now. Can I just underscore that point you just made? Kawhi Leonard did not play like five-odd-five full contact this summer at all. <laughs> yeah. He kind of let that slip during the preseason. And then Paul George hasn't even taken contact yet, uh, and he's going to be out, they say, for you know roughly 10 games to start the season. It is pretty wild that the group think among analysts like ourselves, amongst uh, rival executives, and amongst the odd makers have all just kind of pinned the Clippers as the lowest risk team. Uh, It's pretty extraordinary. That being said, that's where I'm at still. I've been there since July. Some of it is that I just like what the Clippers are about. I think it would be uh, an incredible validation for their planning, their front office, uh, their ownership's commitment. Um, their taste in players, uh, how they you know picked and choose who they kept 
over these last couple of years. I mean, all of it was very artistic in a way from their front office. And so I think you know, that could be influencing my uh, my uh, prediction here a little bit. I've got Clippers over Bucks in seven. I think, you know, from a narrative standpoint, if you're talking about two teams that aren't really prestige franchises in the league, though, Clippers Bucks would be pretty darn good for the league. I mean, Giannis versus Kawhi, uh, you know, you kind of get this offense approach versus a defensive approach. And yet really both teams are, are balanced both ways. Um, you know, you get, uh, you know, Giannis trying to you know t- climb the mountain for the first time, like a young Jordan. You get Kawhi trying to get the third title for the third different franchise, maybe even a third different finals MVP award. Uh, there, there's a lot going on there. You know, it's a little bit different than, you know, Lakers Celtics part 32, right. but it would be pretty good. And I think, I mean, the Clippers, in their defense, I think they, you know, obviously need to weather Paul George's injury here to start the season and then whatever they want to do with Kawhi in terms of managing his workload over the course of the year. But they do have a lot of kind of the mechanisms that teams would want to handle those sorts of things. For one, Doc Rivers has proven to be great at kind of managing some weird rosters, kind of bridging the gap as certain you know core members of his team are out of the lineup. Lou Williams is like one of the prime guys in the league in terms of just kind of sopping up shots and minutes and touches. And they have all these other guys who can kind of step up on the right night, whether it's a Landry Shamet or Montrez Harrell. There's lots of little guys, not you know little guys in terms of role who can kind of plug in and stretch on the right night and take on a bigger role, take on more responsibility. And so I think you can kind of survive those things over the course of the regular season where, you know, it, obviously it's different if, if Paul George and Kawhi are injured going into the playoffs or going into March and April, it's a different situation. But assuming those guys are kind of there in the end, I think the, the Clippers are just good enough to get in position to, to ultimately pave their way. Hey, if there's one team that crashes the party in the Eastern Conference uh, finals and it's not Milwaukee or it's not Philadelphia, who do you think that team is that could crash it? I don't. Ooh, zero, none. I'm going to tell you, uh, this is going to be weird, okay? Uh, but, and the Toronto Termites are going to be like, wait a minute, can we even trust this guy? <laughs> I think it's the Raptors, man. Uh, I don't think the, the Celtics have nearly enough defense to do it. I don't think the Pacers, you know, cute story, just perennially year after year, I don't think they have enough to do it. Um now, I don't know exactly how Toronto does it without a little bit of help, whether it's injury-wise or chemistry-wise, one of these teams melting down. But I really think people are sleeping on Toronto. And I asked you to pick a surprise team from the East and the West. Toronto is my surprise team in the Eastern Conference. I think would you just you know step back and yes, of course, expectations, height, pen- all that pendulum stuff is going to swing hard because they lose Kawhi Leonard for nothing. They've got an all-star point guard uh, locked in through next season in Kyle Lowry. They've got a rising star in Pascal Siakam. To me, he's going to be an all-star this year. They've got two proven interior defenders in Marcus Gasol uh, and Serge Ibaka. They've got you know Fred Van Vliet, a playoff hero, who's shown that he can really ball. And they've also got just some organizational moxie and competence that is severely lacking in the Eastern Conference, right? And, and we've said this about franchises like the Spurs, uh, you know, in the past, or, you know, even to justify, you know, not being too low on the Warriors this year of just this idea that these guys kind of know what they're doing. But some of it to me just kind of comes down to blind faith with Masai Ujiri. Like, I just think he's always going to have a winner out there. Uh, I think he picks his people the right way. I think that they have established a really good culture. Clearly, it showed through in how they played without Kawhi Leonard last year. It was something like a 17 and 5 record, I believe. 
you know, add all that up uh, to me. I think Toronto is uh, deserving of being called a little bit underrated, which their fans love to say every single year. So I'm not turning myself into a termite here. I'm just throwing them a bone and saying, you know, I think if anyone crashes that Eastern Conference party, it's Toronto. I mean, they are my pick to be kind of the third team there for that third seed. A lot, you know, for the reasons you've largely outlined. And in particular, you know, Siakam was so good in those games where Kawhi Leonard was either deliberately held out or just missed due to injury or other causes. You know, having him and the ability to kind of funnel more offense through him. We saw last year that he was, you know, a really good isolation player, a really good post player and pick and roll player when given the opportunity. And he's going to get lots of opportunity this year. I think they are definitely are the standout of that next group. But unfortunately, I think the East as a whole is just kind of light on surprises. I think, you know, there are kind of two clear teams up top. Otherwise, it's kind of a mess. Um, I think, you know, sometimes a conference is just as underwhelming as it seems at first. And I think this year's East is ultimately (laughs) one of them. Uh, You're such a polite guy, but even you have a hard time being polite. They're just light, period. They're light on talent. They're light on exciting storylines. They're light on everything, uh, except for bad teams. And and we're going to hop down to that here in a minute. Do you have a surprise team in the East? Um, is there anyone who you know you think can exceed expectations? Whether it's uh, you know a mid-tier playoff team or even a lottery team that might just you know make a nice little jump. I, I tried to talk myself into a few, and I think you know the Bulls are probably the most cogent one in terms of a team where it's just kind of the right time, given the age of some of their guys, the development curve of some you know how far they've come already and they could kind of turn a corner at least in terms of being a good offense and but ultimately like I mean we're talking about a team that's probably capped at being the seventh or eighth seed in a first round exit maybe that's a surprise or maybe that's kind of where you expect the Bulls to be it would be great if we saw a jump from the Hawks this year but I just don't think they're ready for it and so a lot of these teams who are kind of like on the playoff bubble are just going to be kind of shuffling around. And maybe it's, you know, Miami being two or three seeds ahead of where you would think. But ultimately, I really do have a hard time kind of talking myself into any of these guys. Yeah, I hear you. Um, It's one of those things where like, okay, so maybe a team hops up and they're the four seed in the Eastern Conference. But what does that really mean, right? right? It's like if Orlando got the fourth seed in the East or Miami, I think that they would rightly be viewed as, oh, they're the surprise team this year. Congratulations, they did it. But um, you know, what's that medal really worth? I'm not sure. Well, I think, um, I think surprise. a lot of it's worth, it's like, you know, Kevin Durant's out. So the nets are going to be kind of in flux this year. Victor Oladipo is going to miss an, you know, indefinite period of time. So yeah, a lot of that stuff I think is, you know, whoever the surprise is, as you're mentioning, is going to be settled by just like which of these kind of injured or shaky teams get on any kind of firm ground and are able to get some traction. So just brace yourself right now. Cause it's a long season, Rob. So by like probably late November, early December, we will have to start pretending to care about some of these teams. But for right now, we can just be completely dismissive. Now, tell me your surprise team in the West. The West is tough just because it is so crowded. I mean, I think you could look at a lot of these teams who could be fun surprises, whether it's the Pelicans or the Mavs or the Kings, and yet like all those teams could still miss the playoffs and be kind of relatively surprising. But the one that I kind of keep coming back to is the Timberwolves. And I don't think I don't think they're going to make the playoffs, so they're not like that level of surprise. But one of their biggest problems last year was just that Robert Covington got injured. 
and he only played in about 20 games for them after the trade. But in the minutes that he played, they're like a plus three net, you know, net rating team. They were a, re- a really solid all-around team when they had, you know, a good wing defender and a good shooter to help space the floor. Covington's going to play a little more stretch four this year, which I think is promising given the makeup of their lineup. Carl Towns just had a monster, you know, basically from the time Jimmy Butler was traded onward, just a monster season overall. I think I think the Timberwolves are, are going to be a little scrappy. I don't know that they're going to ultimately make it, you know, really push out one of these these tough kind of top eight, top nine teams. But I think they're going to be more, you know, in the mix and on the bubble than people give them credit for. All right. This is kind of what I was picturing as you were talking. I was picturing <laughs> oh, no. Andrew Wiggins just like stumbling around Central Park, just like not even paying attention to anything. And then Robert Covington comes along and all of a sudden he's like the pace setter for the marathon, you know, and Wiggins like straps on those illegal Nikes. And now because Covington is like setting the right tone, keeping them all focused, uh, you know, playing so hard, being so disruptive defensively, all of a sudden Wiggins is now capable of running like a sub two hour marathon uh, and starting controversies because he's got like carbon plates and issues. That's the formula for Minnesota to make that kind of a jump, right? Because we've seen Carl Anthony Towns play at an all NBA level. We can play as locked in as he can defensively, uh, which is, you know, not really a compliment, but um, you know, he, he tried last year, I thought anyways, and offensively he was a big time impact player, but uh, he just needs real help. That help has to come from Wiggins. And I do think that Covington, uh, you know, can wind up being their second best player. And, you know, if, that just changes the culture. If they have a little bit more buy-in, a little bit more self-belief, um, then you know maybe that does influence a guy like Wiggins, who's kind of there some nights and not there other nights. Um, that would be a very welcome uh, viewing experience uh, for people who have been you know kind of hoping for Minnesota to turn the corner here in a little bit. I like that pick from you. There's no question they played differently with Covington last year. Um, they also got through the coaching drama. So, I mean, that helps too, because they started out. That's the other thing, too, in terms terms of, you know, Ryan Saunders might be the first coach of Carl Towns' career who puts like a genuinely modern offense around him. I think there's a lot of positive indicators coming out of camp and preseason in terms of the way the Wolves are playing and what they're doing in practice and, and training camp that kind of points in that direction. But the Wolves have managed some pretty efficient offenses, even when they kind of weren't playing to a modern sensibility. So I'm curious to see what they can do when they actually have kind of the numbers straight. One thing to watch for with Towns uh, and also Anthony Davis this year, these guys are going to have the ball in their hands on the perimeter more than you're you're used to seeing. I mean, Towns has this whole idea that he should run 5-1 pick and rolls regularly where basically like, he's getting screens from guards and he gets to, you know, play make and, and distribute and maybe step back and shoot threes. And it sounds wild three years ago, but now you're just like, sure, whatever, give the ball to your best <laughs> player and see what happens. And I, I think that Saunders, like you're mentioning, is open-minded enough to dig into that. They've had it all summer to think about it. I know they were kind of flirting with it at times last year. So I just think you're going to see him do really fun things with the basketball, like not freelancing, not like DeMarcus Cousins, just like, you know, running down the court in a fast break and, you know, good things might happen or good things might not happen. Um, but more structured type playmaking in the half court from big guys. It's a wrinkle that I'm looking forward to seeing from both him and Anthony Davis. Um, my surprise team is the Pelicans and surprise my heart is already broken because I didn't even get to make this pick before Zion is out for uh, six to eight weeks. I still kind of like this Pelicans group, man. Um, I don't know if it's because I listened to David Griffin's incredibly trippy appearance on 
Woj's pod over the summer while I was staring out over like 10,000 cacti in the Arizona desert. And I just really had a moment and it stuck with me. Um, but I'm just kind of a believer in their culture shift, their culture overhaul. Uh, you know, in a best case scenario, Zion's still playing 60 games. They've got some depth at various positions. They've got shooting. Uh, I think Favors, Derek Favors is a guy who you and I have kind of uh, banged the drum about needing to have his own starting job, his own team for these last couple of years. And he gets that uh, in this situation. They need everything that he can bring to the table. Um, I just think they have enough good players. Um, you know, and you throw on top Drew Holiday, who you could even say is a very, very good player, to be com- competitive night to night. And I also think they have enough youth and athleticism where they're going to kind of bring the pain to opponents, you know, fairly regularly, uh, especially sort of less talented, uh, you know, opponents as well. So I think they've got a chance to get into that playoff mix. They may wind up falling just short. Um, but you know, to me, it's a still a, a reasonable bandwagon to be on as long as Zion comes back on the schedule they've given us. What well, what do you want to see from them in terms of their starting lineup with Zion out? Because you know they could put Ingram in there, they could put Nicola Melli in there, maybe put Kenrich Williams and play a little smaller. Like what what do you think is kind of their optimal starting look without him? I've always thought that Ingram needs as much space as possible. So I would probably go him at the four and try to go a little bit smaller and keep shooting in there. Now it's very tricky because he's going to get pounded. And even guys like Paul George and Kawhi Leonard don't want to play the four. And, you know, you look at Brandon Ingram and it's like, you know, you're looking at a, you know, a freshman team version of, of those kinds of guys. So that's a real, you know, physical pounding. But to me, if, if he's going to have a breakthrough season uh, or at least a breakthrough start to the season, he needs as much room to operate as possible so he can get downhill. He can get himself to the free throw line. He can finish over fewer hands and against less bigs. So I would probably go that way, but um, I don't really have a firm sense for what they're going to try to do there. What do you think? I mean, I think that's probably the move or, I mean, maybe Melly if you really just wanted the, you know, to kind of max out the spacing, but I like Ingram there. The issue with that is like not only the the kind of beating he's going to take, as you mentioned, but then the rebounding where, you know, Favors isn't a great rebounder by center standards. And then to also put an Ingram there as your four, I mean, it's great that, you know, Lonzo and some of these other guards are kind of above average rebounders for their position. But if you want to be like a running and fast break team that has to start with your defensive rebounding and, and playing that undersized could be an issue, although Ingram is certainly long enough to maybe, you know, get a hand or deflect or kind of redirect some rebounds to his teammates. No, I mean this injury just flat out sucks, man. Yep. Like they don't have a great they don't have a great answer. They really needed Zion to do Zion things. Uh even though they didn't necessarily build this entire thing around him, you know, some of these pieces that came from LA just sort of were the pieces that they could get. Um you know, it's not like this is a completely like maximized uh, Zion as the centerpiece type of roster. Uh it's not like, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks have had years to kind of build around Giannis, but they definitely still need, you know, the energy the rebounding ability, the interior scoring, the interior passing that Zion brought to the table, and they don't really have a good way to replace it. I think in this kind of a situation, I would go a little bit old school, and I would just say, like, who are the five guys who I trust the most? And I think in that case, it would be Lonzo, Drew, Redick, Ingram, and Favors, and that's how I would roll, and that would sacrifice some first unit, second unit scoring balance, definitely would sacrifice some size uh, around the perimeter. But, you know, given that this is like really bad news, you know, being dropped in your lap, like right before the start of the season, that's probably how I would do it. 
I know. It's painful because this is like the one player, not only from a talent standpoint, but from a positional standpoint, that they really couldn't afford to lose. I mean, the Pelicans have a deep and interesting roster that can shuffle around in a lot of cool ways, and yet Zion was going to be the centerpiece of all of that. So if you miss a point guard or you miss a shooter or another big, you can kind of make do. But without Zion, the roster just makes a little bit less sense. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with a message from Mattress Firm. The only thing better than watching your team win is a perfect nap. And Mattress Firm's President's Day sale lets you get a king mattress for a queen price or a queen mattress for a twin price for savings of up to $600. And you can take home a free adjustable base with a qualifying purchase. But you have to hurry. The clock is ticking on this sale. It's ending soon. Isn't it time you saved and slept like a champion? Shop now. Mattressfirm.com mattressfirm.com for the President's Day sale. Yeah, we'll hop back to some more Zion talk here in a little bit. Let's close out our picks here, though. Who is your biggest disappointment in the Western Conference? And I guess this is subjective. So it could be a team you think is going to fall short of general expectations, a team that you just want to bury for no particular reason, uh, whatever your definition, Rob. This, this feels a little basic, but I think the Blazers are that team. And some of it's just, you know, for a team that went to the Western Conference Finals last year, they have a lot less continuity than you would think. They really only have, you know, excluding Yusuf Nurkic, they have like three guys basically returning from anywhere near regular minutes last season. And then they're, you know, replacing it with, you know, some competent pieces, some interesting, you know, interesting options, but then also Hassan Whiteside, who I just fundamentally don't trust as a basketball player. And then you have not only Hassan Whiteside, but then when Nurkic does come back, trying to manage two guys who historically have been a little bit sensitive in terms of their management while working with other bigs and the number of minutes and touches they get that, you know, that whole dance is going to be, it's not the kind of problem I would want to have to solve mid season as I'm trying to navigate a difficult Western conference. And so I think the path for the Blazers to even getting back into the playoffs is going to be tough. You know, even, even accounting for how good Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum and Terry Stotts are at their jobs, it's just going to be tricky, much less kind of getting through any of the rounds of the playoffs from that point. Okay, so what qualifies as a disappointment? Lottery, first round exit? I mean, where's the bar for them? Because they're coming off their first Western Conference Finals appearance since, I I believe, 2000. Uh, You know, kind of a magical miracle run, all things considered, like that crazy super overtime game against Denver. Uh, You know, no one really saw it coming because of the Nurkic injury last year. So, like, what is your barometer for disappointment here? Well, so I think internally, if you were to ask the Blazers, they would probably consider making the playoffs but losing in the first round to be a disappointment. And I think that's obviously a very realistic scenario. And if you, you know, polled media members or fans or people with other teams, I think they would say that, you know, a very plausible disappointment would be missing the playoffs altogether, which, you know, as we've kind of broken down over the last couple episodes with just the sheer number of teams in the West who could be getting in there, I think you have to consider that a possibility, not only from an injury standpoint where, you know, God forbid what happens if Damian Lillard misses 20 games, but even if everyone's relatively healthy, the West is just so good. I think that there's there's a lot of avenues in which the Blazers kind of get boxed out of the playoff picture. So why don't you trust Damian Lillard? I mean, what a hater, <laughs> right? What does this guy have to do to uh, convince you that he can carry any set of teammates uh, into the playoffs or, you know, uh, t- towards a competitive, uh, you know, final output. I mean, uh, is it that you're that skeptical of this new group? Because when I look at this team, I mean, Rodney Hood, Zach Collins, Hassan Whiteside, those guys are all, to me, clear downgrades from the guys who were in those spots last year, whether it's Harkless, Aminu, 
or Nurkic, right? Like, and I understand people are going to say, oh, Whiteside's got these big numbers. Come on. Like, we know who Whiteside is. Um, Collins definitely has some upside. Don't think he's that guy yet. Uh, Rodney Hood, you know, I want to believe. um, But, you know, it's, you know, that's still, you know, kind of... uh, a test, a daily test to believe in Rodney Hood, right? And you look at some of the other guys they picked up off the scrap heap, whether it's Tolliver, Hazonia. I mean, these are guys who are just kind of bouncing around. Pal Gasol. I mean, you're not going to be getting very much from those kinds of players consistently night to night over the course of the season, unless the counter argument would go, we're underrating Damian Lillard's ability to, you know, impact his teammates and to, to pull, you know, good play out of, you know, not good players. So where do you fall on that dilemma? Like, I think a lot of people would say guys like James Harden, Steph Curry, LeBron James are going to elevate their teammates. Do we not give Damian Lillard the same respect? I think he deserves some of the same respect, both in in terms of how he plays and and the gravity he brings as a player. And then obviously the cultural aspect as a leader. And I think, you know, there's, again, a lot of good signs in terms of him trying to take a guy like Whiteside under his wing and kind of show him how the Blazers do things and get him used to the culture there. It's just like this is the highest degree of difficulty assimilation that the Blazers have undertaken, both in terms of Whiteside specifically, and then as you mentioned, just kind of across the board, trading out talent for slightly lesser or at least slightly different talent. And I think guys like Aminu and Harkless are very easy to overlook in terms of their contributions, but were always really important to the Blazers and the the way they defend and the way they kind of manage games and what they bring to the table as rebounders and cutters and how that plays off of what Lillard and McCollum do. I think it's just so tough to replace that. And at the same time, you're you know losing a valuable shooter in Seth Curry. You're you're just kind of missing a lot from what made the Blazers the Blazers. And so I think, you know, Dame certainly deserves a lot of credit for being a great player and kind of elevating his teammates in certain ways. But they're kind of starting from scratch rather than starting from, you know, a 50-plus win Western Conference finalist. I hear you. My disappointment uh, is a team that you put in the Western Conference finals. It's the Houston Rockets. Mm-hmm. Um I will say this largely because I've been trying to defend James Harden for so long. Um, If they don't break through this year after having Golden State being the only team that could really stand in their way, if they get tripped up in the playoffs, if they start getting in some of these shouting matches between the stars like they did at times in last year's playoffs, if the China thing just hangs over them because of what Maury tweeted, if Tillman Fertitta just continues to be unpredictable and a little bit of a distraction if even just kind of minor injuries around the edges limit their ceiling a little bit right um or if a guy like Clint Capella happens to miss some time um there's just a lot of different ways I could see this thing going wrong it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a disaster but to me their expectations as an organization this season should be title period and I'm not sure that they did the right things over the last six months to set them up, set themselves up to maximize their chances there. And for that, I'm already kind of disappointed. And we'll see how it plays out. I think they're going to be a very good regular season team. I've got faith in Harden to be that consistent, reliable producer that we know he can be. Um, you know, I think that the Westbrook question for me really becomes important in April, you know, not so much in uh, October and November, but I'm just really bracing for the whole storyline to kind of go sideways from this organization. Of course, I'm not rooting for that, but I'm I'm preparing myself mentally because uh, there's just too many kind of icky vibes out there. 
I mean, I think they're going to have to be really good when Westbrook has the ball. And you know, even in a playoff series when the pace slows down, they're going to have to get you know some fast break points. They're going to have to get some easy transition stuff or secondary break stuff. They're just going to have to be really good when he's kind of in control of the offense because we know what a Harden offense can do. And even in the playoffs, for as much heat as Harden takes, the Rockets overall acquit themselves very well to playoff basketball. It's just a matter of, you know, in a couple in a couple spots, in certain situations, he's run out of gas. And in, certainly in some big games, I don't think he's beyond criticism in that regard. But the stuff when Russ has the ball is going to be kind of the big variable because if he's still kind of as inefficient as he was last year, which was, you know, maybe unexpected in some ways, but he's always been a player who's reliant on athleticism, reliant on kind of being right where he can he can burst off screens, where he can really beat you to the basket and then finish really well. If those things aren't happening, if he just kind of is that guy now, then the Rockets are going to find themselves in some trouble because, you know, Chris Paul for even, you know, in his athletic decline could run a hell of a second unit offense. You know, the Rockets were always good, even with James Harden off the floor, because Paul could really run that show. And if Westbrook can't do that, and he didn't do it last year very well for the Thunder without Paul George, but I think we can attribute some of that to the spacing and the players who were there. If you give him good spacing and a good supporting cast and play at a good pace and he's still not efficient, things are going to get pretty dark. Okay, man. Same question. Eastern Conference. Who's your biggest disappointment? I took the Pistons, and I think it's because they're playing for literally one thing, which is to make the playoffs, and I have a sneaking suspicion that they're just not going to get there. Um, you know, they improved what was a pretty flawed team on the margins a little bit. You know, there's some there's some kind of marginal uptick, but they still just don't seem quite good or balanced enough to break through, and I think they have enough kind of challenge and, you know, if you'll pardon the pun, enough heat coming from below them that they're going to get kind of shoved <laughs> oh. out of that conversation. <laughs> Uh, I love it. Wordplay. Um, I hear you. Like their margin for error is pretty thin, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw what happened when Blake couldn't play in the playoffs. It got so dark so fast, and it wasn't like he was going to single-handedly change that. But his absence at times in that series basically guaranteed it, right? Um, and I think that's kind of the same deal. Uh, can he play as many minutes, uh, shoulder as much burden, be as consistently dominant as he was uh, last season? Uh, I think it's easier to uh, bet no than it is yes on that. My biggest disappointment, though, is the New York Knicks. And look, it's very hard to be disappointed in the Knicks at this point. I think expectations have been very uh, carefully calibrated for this organization over the last 20 years. Uh, Certainly, they're in the dumps. But I still think it's possible. I think these guys are going to be really bad. I didn't like any of their summer moves basically at all. I think it's going to be a very challenging developmental set up for RJ Barrett. They really did him no favors whatsoever in the guys that they brought in. You're already hearing grumbling about roles uh, during the preseason from some of their overlapping guys, some of their redundant players. Uh, I'm not a Dennis Smith Jr. guy, you know, basically at all, still out on him. And then I do think at some point, doesn't the Porzingis trade second guessing start to come back in a really big time way? Like I think that they sort of dodged a lot of initial criticism on that deal because it was anticipated they would get Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Obviously, there was a huge outcry of anger in July when they didn't get those guys and everyone's looking around saying, wait a minute, why did we trade Porzingis? And of course, you know, to a real degree, Porzingis is damaged goods from a health standpoint and then also had some very serious off-court issues that he was dealing with. But if Porzingis comes back and plays well or, you know, God forbid, from the Knicks' perspective, if he looks like a star 
you know, a secondary star for the Dallas Mavericks, and they're really generating a lot of positive buzz and excitement, you know, with, with Luca and Porzingis. I mean, Knicks fans are going to be sitting around saying, wait a minute, what have we been doing here for the last two years? Why did we trade away the only guy who was worth anything uh, to, you know, put together this franchise or this roster, which really makes no sense. So add all that up, I could see them being very disappointing in a, you know, even by Knicks standards, uh, a rough season. I mean, I, for one, will not abide the idea that a team that publicly apologized in free agency for not getting anyone good could possibly be a disappointment this season. Well, look, let's not bag on them for that, because, you know, as we all know, it's hard to apologize, Rob. It's difficult. I mean, you know, and especially when you have to do it uh, in a formal statement because you completely screwed your job up. That's (laughs) not fun. So I'll give them respect for the public apology. There's a lot of other things that that organization has done over the years that uh, certainly are not worthy of respect. Uh, But I think an apology was uh, the least they could do, right? No, that's fair. And you know what? I apologize for, for airing them out in that manner. (laughs) <laughs> that's big of you that's very see you know you feel better it's hard to do it's hard to get those words out of your mouth i'm sorry uh but sometimes it feels better hey the worst teams in the league western and eastern conference who you got i don't think there's really a way around this or that much room to argue i think it has to be the grizzlies and the hornets um you know the grizzlies even the suns you know in a worst case scenario just have so much more you know kind of nba ready talent than the grizzlies do and then the hornets even in a relatively weak eastern conference and certainly a bottom half of the east that looks pretty dire when you're talking about like the knicks as you mentioned the Cavs. i think maybe there's some teams in the running but when your best player and certainly your highest paid player is terry rozier actually maybe nick maybe nick batum's still making more money than he is but just the investment there really concerns me in terms of what the, how much of their offense they're going to have to run through terry rozier yeah, when your two best players are overpaid disappointments already, uh, you're off to a tough start. They don't have a single guy in the top 100, do they? No, no, they were the only team without this year. Oh, that's a good sign. <laughs> that's a great sign. Uh, and they don't have that many young guys. Uh, you know, when we got into that beef with the North Carolina chess champion a few, a few episodes <laughs> ago, uh, we kind of realized or came to the conclusion that their young prospects aren't that exciting either. To me, it is the Hornets. I think the Cavaliers have a chance to be pretty bad too. Uh, not exactly breaking crazy ground there. Um, but I just think Charlotte's going to be, uh, in one of those situations that's going to be really trying, uh, for their coaching staff, keeping guys bought in, keeping people playing hard, keeping people, you know, not just going through the motions as zombies night to night to night. I mean, I think at least with, uh, Cleveland, you've got some young players who are doing it for the first time or trying to take a, you know, a major second year step for a player like Colin Sexton. And I think in Charlotte, it's just sort of like, it feels like a team that's going to be just punching the clock, uh, waiting for the first and 15th, and, uh, you know, potentially, you know, trying to uh, have a good time on the road trips and do it for the gram. All right. Um, In the Western Conference, I've got the Grizzlies too, Rob. Uh, I think I'm not as totally sold on you that they're definitely going to be horrible. There is a scenario where I could see John Moran just being a stud, Jaron Jackson being the guy who I've thought he was. And that being frisky enough to maybe like get them past, you know, one team in the Western Conference standings. I mean, if the Suns just, you know, don't make any progress on any major front, if Oklahoma City tears the whole thing down, if, you know, something were to happen to Carl Anthony Downs, God forbid, for Minnesota. I mean, there's a couple other teams I could see spiraling. 
Um, but I just don't think Memphis has that much of a ceiling, like even in that best case scenario. I think they're the safest pick as the worst team in the West. And they also have motivation to be the worst team in the West because of you know how their draft picks kind of lay out here uh, going forward. Uh, to me, I don't think they should run up the minutes crazy on either Jaron Jackson Jr. Uh, or John Morant. I think they should be judicious there. Uh, let them learn. Don't overtax them. Be responsible about it. And if you lose games and you need to sort of strategically tank down the stretch, uh, so be it. I, I don't think that there should be any expectations on this team whatsoever this year. And I think that could make them actually, even though they're probably going to be the worst team in the Western Conference, I think they'll be one of the uh, most fun teams to watch. No, I think there's. I think the most plausible scenario is that both Jaron and John Morant look great and look, you know, really dynamic in comparison, you know, relative to one another, like they're going to be a really great duo for a long time. And yet still the Grizzlies just win like 20 something games because the the reality is that even though they're a better team than maybe a couple of the teams at the bottom of the East, the competition and the kind of the cannibalization in the West is going to be so hard on their schedule. I just don't see them getting out with, you know, more than 20 something wins next year. All right, let's switch gears uh, to our guy, Zion Williamson. And I kind of said it right off the top. This one's hitting me hard. Okay, Rob? And I think that I'm not alone. If I was in the NBA's office or the television partner's office, I would be freaking out right now. I don't know if you knew this. 11 of the Pelicans' first 20 games were scheduled to be aired on national TV, either TNT, ESPN, or NBA TV. So if he misses those 20 games, that's an awful lot of uh, Pelicans games in high profile spots that are not going to include him. You even look at opening week, he was supposed to go with the Pelicans to Toronto for ring night on opening night. Five of their first seven games were going to be on national television, and they had him squared off against Luka Doncic on Friday on ESPN in a pretty obvious sort of hype beast uh, you know, showdown. On top of all this, Zion will also miss Anthony Davis's first game back in New Orleans as a member of the Los Angeles Lakers. And I think the whole NBA is just hoping that he can get back in time uh, for the Christmas Day game when they go visit the Denver Nuggets. So I just wondered if, if you'd given any thought not only to the implications of what this injury means for Zion and the Pelicans, but also the league as a whole. I mean, doesn't this feel like a very ominous dark cloud to kind of open the season? I mean, it feels like quite a blow. I think the only thing kind of, you know, uh, softening it is the fact that there are so many stories and so many interesting teams around the league. If this were going into last year, for example, where it kind of looked like the Warriors were going to be there in the end, and we're just kind of parsing out who's going to make it out of the East. And then also, you know, Zion gets or a player of his caliber is injured coming into that level of spotlight to start the season it would be a different thing. I think at least this year, there are enough other shiny objects around to distract us for a little while. But it is tough. I mean, just from a marquee standpoint, as you detailed, we, we've been talking a lot recently about how excited we are to kind of see him match up with some of these elite players in the West and elite teams in the West, just how different he is, even relative to other NBA talent. It's it's hard. But I do think, you know, if if you are going to be captain accountability, Ben, I think we do need to hold you personally responsible, as you said over the uh, you know at the top, for pretty much every bad thing that has ever happened in Zion Williamson's career. Because all of this, as far as I'm concerned, really did start with you and Andrew putting it in motion. Wow. So you're not alone. We got some emails to openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. And Jeff writes, 
I have recently become a supporter of Zion Inc. and I feel it is my duty to investigate all possibilities with the hope that we can preserve his health going forward. I have to ask, Ben, if you were in the vicinity of Pelicans versus Spurs game on Sunday. That's when it's believed that Zion injured his knee. I know you are two for two in attending his games and getting him injured. Is this now three for three? Well, thanks a lot, Jeff. I mean, you made a tough season, <laughs> uh, tough uh, situation that much worse for me. I've already got enough guilt. Now you're piling it on just like Rob's piling it on. Look, the standard counter here would be that his style of play makes him more prone to injury than other players, that the amount of force that he's playing with is, you know, from a long-term perspective, not necessarily healthy for his knees. Uh, When you look at his previous injuries, the first one was very fluky with the shoe blowing out, but it did wind up being a knee sprain. His summer league one was an unidentified uh, knee injury. We never really got the full story on that. It was the other knee, his left knee. And then now this one, um, it's not clear exactly when it happened, as Jeff noted, but it, it is believed to be in that Spurs game, and, and it's back to being his right knee again. So this is concerning to me. Um, you know, obviously people are going to rush to the worst case scenario comparisons. Greg Oden, Blake Griffin. I mean, guys who had knee injuries right off the top of their careers that kind of wound up defining them. And of course, their number one picks just like Zion is. I'm still not ready to commit to that. Uh, I think with Odin, there was, I mean, a lot of athletic talent, but he wasn't the most natural, you know, mover, right? Like he kind of had the awkward gait, you know, getting up and down the court sometimes wasn't always the smoothest uh, thing for him. I mean, with Zion, he's just such a pure athlete. There seems to be a, a real distinct contrast there. Uh, the Zion Blake Griffin one, I, I do think, is a little bit closer because it's the same deal with Blake. I mean, he was a very pure athlete, uh, coordinated, incredibly explosive, uh, you know, on the heavier side, uh, you know, for players at that position when he was young. And, uh, you know, so that one, it's a, maybe a little bit more of a relevant comparison. But what do you make of this idea, Rob, that, you know, Zion's got to lose weight? Or Zion's got to remake his body to get himself into a situation where he can hold up, uh, you know, for game after game, year after year. Well, we also got a really interesting email from Michael kind of comparing Zion's injury situation and his health with the idea of Steph Curry and his ankles. And just like how Steph had to change his routine, strengthen his strengthen his ankles, get more actual physical support around it to kind of take the next step in his career. And whether Zion would have to kind of reimagine his routine or his biomechanics or his strength and conditioning in any way. I thought that was a really interesting comparison. But the tough part with Zion, and, and you know, you ran into this when you were parsing the difference between him and Blake and these other guys, you know, we're kind of assuming we've seen anything like this before, and we haven't. We've we've never seen a player this big and this explosive kind of go through the rigors of NBA play. And so where you would even start with kind of making the designs on those things, I don't know. Like, Zion may have more in common with, like, a spacecraft re-entering the atmosphere than he does, like, the average power forward, right? Like, like you need to consult, like, Death Star plans to understand the nuances of what's going on in his body and it puts you know team personnel in a really tricky position where I'm sure there are a lot, a lot of hard and fast rules, a lot of kind of guidelines for how to deal with different body types. And Zion, in so many ways, just seems like he's going to break the mold. We say some utterly ridiculous stuff about Zion on this podcast. It's great. <laughs> I love I love that, Rob. Uh, you're really upping the upping the ante there. 
I do think the guy he needs to talk to is Blake Griffin. I mean, Blake Griffin, I believe he's actually coming out with a podcast on health and wellness. You know, talking to him for a couple of stories over the years during his Clippers tenure, the dude investigated everything. I mean, he remade his game from the jump shot, you know, where he was taking his, uh, you know, shot attempts from. I mean, obviously the evolution on the court is, is very clear. But despite all of his injuries over the years, I mean, he really did become an expert in terms of how to manage different things, uh, keep himself in shape, give himself the best chance to hold up. I think he would be an incredible resource for Zion. I hope those two can connect somehow, uh, you know, and just, you know, give Zion a chance to hear from someone who's been through it, because I'm sure that Blake learned a lot of tough lessons along the way, uh, going from a super hype number one pick to, uh, you know, a guy at this stage of his career where he's still an all-star. Uh, but maybe never quite tapped out uh, his potential. We all thought he could be when he was, say, 21 or 22. Hey, Rob, let's close up this episode by talking briefly about your, uh, you know, your Jamal Murray story in this week's Sports Illustrated. Um, I, the part that jumped out to me more than anything is you referenced uh, Nuggets coach Michael Malone's decision to trust Murray during tough moments of the playoffs. Uh, specifically, I believe it was Game Two, right? Yes, game two against the Spurs. Where everything's going horribly wrong for the first three quarters. Uh, he had you know, missed a shot at the end of game one. It was that natural crossroads moment where a coach has to decide, do I trust this guy or do I not? And in this case, you know, Murray's a young guy in his first postseason, unproven and acting somebody radically. Uh, Malone chose to trust him. That decision was paid off magnificently with an incredible fourth, fourth quarter performance by Murray, which arguably was kind of a turning point for that series. The Nuggets, you know, go ahead and go on and win that series. After the game, Malone basically broke it down honestly and was like, look, his career was on the line. This wasn't just about one game. This is about trying to build him up to be the best player he can be. This is a long-term decision. You know, I'm trying to think of, you know, where he's going to be, you know, years from now. I was struck by that entire moment at the time, and the more that I've thought about it since and kind of thought about some other similar situations, the more it just really sticks with me, man. I mean, you look at like the Dodgers trusting Kershaw with the playoffs on the line and him choking and it backfiring and the manager having to basically say, look, I trusted my guy, stand up there and take all the hits for it. Um, and you know, there goes their 106 win season, record setting season, just poof out the window. You know, you look back at Billy Donovan with uh, Carmelo Anthony a couple of years ago, like when push came to shove in the playoffs, did he trust Carmelo in the biggest moments? No, he didn't. And you could see just the anguish on Carmelo Anthony's face. I mean, these are some of the most intimate decisions that can be made in professional sports. I mean, it really does like that coach player decision there. Do you trust me? Am I, you know, one of your top five guys? Can you put me out here uh, with the entire season on the line? It's not about contracts anymore. It's not about fame anymore. It's about nothing else, but will I perform? I mean, that really, 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 you know, dives deeply. I mean, and, you know, outside of like, you know, a husband, wife, uh, or, you know, significant other type relationships, it doesn't get a lot closer than that, does it? Well, I think rarely in anyone's kind of line of work are your bosses or your superiors or your managers in any capacity forced to make that kind of like in the moment. We are like we are only making a decision for what matters at this very second, and you are either good enough or not good enough. And if they do make those decisions, they're behind closed doors. You don't really get to to experience the process of it. And 
athletes and basketball players in particular have to, you know, like Malone has to make a call in that moment where, you know, Monte Morris wasn't having a great series, but otherwise is a very solid backup point guard. Or, or maybe you just kind of put a bunch of wings out there with Nikola Jokic. Like, it's not like he was short on options. But as you mentioned, you know, Malone really looked at it as kind of coaching for the future of their franchise, for the future of that relationship. And it's one of those things where you don't want to attribute too much to one coaching decision in one game in terms of when things could go sour between a player and a team. But you could really see that in terms of, you know, a, a snowball effect. If, if Malone benches Murray in that game, regardless of whether they win or lose it, he could kind of set things in motion in a particular direction where Murray doesn't trust him in quite the same way anymore. And, and Malone is a guy who is, you know, very vocal in terms of trying to have his players back, but also trying to be very honest with them. And maybe that honesty isn't as, you know, as accepted or, or Murray isn't as receptive of it in the future if he's if he's thinking, well, this guy's saying all this stuff to me, but he really doesn't have my best interest or he doesn't care about my future as a player. Well, Rob, the other thing is he can plant seeds of doubt. You know, yeah. if my coach doesn't trust me, do I trust myself? You know, next time I'm in that situation, it's a very, very tricky layered situation. I thought Malone handled it very well. And I think that his logic for that decision uh, says a lot about the Nuggets culture, too, because Malone wasn't coaching to, out of self-preservation. He wasn't trying to do the thing that, you know, that he would do if he was worried about getting fired you know, based on the results of that series, right? He was doing what was in, in the organization's best interest, Murray's best interest long-term, uh, not sort of play-to-play or quarter-to-quarter or game-to-game. And I think that's what you should look for when you're judging, you know, the best organizations around the league, you know, who trusts their coaches, who puts them in situations to be empowered, and then, you know, which of those coaches are able to empower their players. It's a sign of a healthy dynamic, uh, and I do think, you know, for the purposes of today's episode, it's the sign of a team that we should be taking uh, pretty seriously as 2020 title contenders. Now, another fascinating thing from your story, Rob, that I want to get your thoughts on real quick. Murray says his breakthrough didn't come yet, right? right. Uh, he still has more coming. I mean, walk us through uh, why he said that or, or why that came up and then what you think his ceiling is here. Um, you know, both for next season and then also maybe long term. Yeah, so I was asking him about it in the context of, you know, before last season, the GM survey, annual GM survey done by NBA.com, the GMs around the league voted him as the player most likely to have a breakout year. And so I asked him if he thought he had one. And his response was, hell no. He was, you know, more than emphatic about the idea that he still had steps to take and things to do. And I think the team largely agrees with that, starting with the idea of being more consistent and, and certainly of being a better defender. Where Murray's one of these guys who has the physical profile, I think, to be a pretty competent defender, but isn't there yet. And in terms of his shot selection and decision making, is still learning the game at the NBA level, is still kind of learning the nuances of how to to kind of regulate his habits. And so he's still finding his way. He still needs to figure some of those things out. But I think there's no question he can be better, that kind of his, his real breakout is yet to come. It may not come with as big a jump in points per game or something like that, but in terms of his impact and his consistency and just his reliability as a player, a guy who, you know, a coach like Michael Malone can really not just stand up for, but can really bank on, I think that change is still coming. So when you're looking at this coming season, um, can we elevate Murray and Jokic into this super duos conversation with guys like LeBron and Anthony Davis, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, Steph Curry and Draymond Green, uh, Russell Westbrook and James Harden? Um, I mean, is he equipped to be that guy right now? Or do you think, I mean, is it fair to say like maybe he's not as famous as those guys or as accomplished as those guys, but 
his ability to step up will be as influ- influential for Denver as those other stars are for their respective teams? Well, I think Jokic is already there. There's kind of no question in that regard. His credentials are pretty unimpeachable. It's more about Murray. And I think getting him to that level is a bit of a stretch. I think maybe this season, a a good scenario or best case scenario would look more like, you know, getting him to the level of a Donovan Mitchell, for example, getting him just a little bit more kind of play to play reliability. You know, part of Murray's game is being unpredictable and the fact that it's hard as a defender to get a beat on him and you don't want to take that away. But you also need to kind of rein him in within the offense in certain respects. And it's going to be an even bigger challenge this year with, you know, Gary Harris and Will Barton coming back for hopefully full seasons and hopefully better seasons where they're equipped to do a little bit more. You know, both kind of struggled over the course of last year. And then, you know, maybe Michael Porter Jr. is a more, you know, relevant and functional uh, element of their offense as well. But you still want to run it all through Jokic and you still want Murray to kind of play within himself. Uh, so I think I think he still has some room to grow to kind of get to that that point, and that's where the Nuggets are kind of different from some of these other contenders. Where maybe they're closer to the Jazz in some ways. You know, they have the one superstar in Jokic, and then it's Murray's probably you know probably the highest variance player in terms of making you know having that kind of upward mobility within uh, you know the scope of the league. For sure. I mean, I think that's their worst case is sort of this jazz model of we've got like five contributors, you know, one obvious centerpiece and then a bunch of other guys who are being very helpful. But when Tim Connolly told you in your story, you know, this max contract for Murray means that we're expecting more out of him, my eyes kind of lit up because I've been pretty high on Murray and I think this guy could be a really good player. And I want him to feel those expectations internally. I'm sure he does. I mean, given his personality, how driven he is and, you know, the backstory with his father, uh, you know, basically grooming him to be a professional athlete. I'm sure he feels that stuff, but that's in play for him. And, And there's not that many players at his age or from his draft class who are, are in a position to reach that ceiling on a team that's ready to win right now. So go out there and do it, Jamal. Let's see it. I'm ready for it. It would be an amazing story, uh, and I think it would really shake up the entire conference. Uh, Hey, Rob, we're out of time, but let's real quick plug a bunch of stuff, okay? You've got the SI NBA preview issue out on newsstands now. Everybody go pick that up for my guy, Rob. He put in lots of work this year. All those scouting reports where, uh, you know, the scouts are kind of ripping on opposing teams, those are in there. Rob's got the Jamal Murray story, uh, and he's got the Houston Rockets cover story. Uh, as well. Guys, I've got a weekly newsletter that's going out throughout the year, 12 months a year, but you know, it's a new season. If you haven't already subscribed, you know, go to my Twitter page. I got a link to it. Uh, this week's uh, edition is all about the Toronto Raptors. I bounce around from topic to topic. Uh, I try to get a takeoff every single week. It's free. It goes out on Mondays. So check that out as well. We're also on Apple Podcasts here with the Open Floor Podcast. So go to Apple Podcasts, Uh, search for open floor that's two words find our page scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy i'm on twitter at ben goliver rob's on twitter at rob mahoney i'm on instagram at ben.goliver rob's on instagram but he refuses to plug it okay that is all the plugs we've got email us as always open floor mail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com the next time we talk to you we will have 2019-20 regular season action to discuss i cannot wait hey rob until later this week i'll talk to you later ben